Please turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, if you experience finding uh, difficulty, if you have difficulty finding Titus in your Bibles, you're not alone. Uh, it's tucked in your New Testament, past Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy. And the epistle of Titus is exactly that. It's, a, it's an epistle, it's a letter to a pastor named Titus, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Titus himself, he was a pastor in Crete. And uh, it's worth knowing, as we read Titus today, that that Crete was one of the most obviously sinful cultures that we encounter in the New Testament. Paul himself says, of, says to Titus in Titus 1 that one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Apparently, Paul found the one Cretan that tells the truth. They were a wicked, uh, debased culture. And this helps us understand uh, Paul's constant encouragement throughout, throughout the epistle of Titus that the people of God must be seen in contrast to a sinful culture. Simply put, a major theme of this epistle is that God's people must be holy. More simply put, it's that Christians must be good. A central purpose of the gospel is that Jesus Christ saves people in order that they might perform good works. However, lest we wrongfully conclude that Christianity is a works-based faith or that Christians earn their way or establish their faith based on their works, we would do well to examine Titus 3, verses 1 through 8 closely. Listen as I read. Verse 1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Will you pray pray with me? Father, surely we have a glorious text in front of us this morning, and Lord, uh, I confess that I am incapable of conveying the glory of this text, so Lord, I ask that your spirit would help me. Lord, we pray that your spirit would help your people now as they receive this glorious text, Lord, as they receive your word. Lord, may your word encourage, may your word bless your people. Lord, may your word convict your people and convict all people here of sin, Lord, Uh, Lord, that they might perform good works, Lord. We pray that you would bless us now as the word is preached. In Jesus' name, amen. My aim this morning is to, is to draw our gaze upon Christ as we consider the wonders of salvation. The wonders of salvation. So I have three points from the text this morning. The first is the context of salvation. The second is the work of salvation. And the third is the, pur- the purpose of salvation. So that's the context of salvation, the work of salvation, and the purpose of salvation. Throughout the epistle to Titus, Paul is instructing Titus, the pastor, to preach to his people, the congregation, how to live in a setting of a wicked culture. 
In verses 1 1 through 2, he gives seven imperatives for the church. He tells them to, to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And what we have here are all just basic commands that that mostly pertain to how Christians should conduct themselves to other people, particularly those outside the community of faith, particularly those outside the church. The most significant command here is the last, and that's that believers ought to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Perfect courtesy towards all people. The NIV uh, says, always be gentle to all people. The King James Version says, show all meekness to all men. The idea is that believers ought to show gentleness. They ought to show kindness. You could even say compassion to all people. Paul goes on to explain why exactly believers ought to show such kindness. And this leads me to our first point, which is the context of salvation. Paul details the simple reason why they ought to, why they ought to be, show this courtesy to, to all people. And that's what we see in verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You might wonder, what what exactly is Paul doing here? And and I believe what what we have here is basically a a non-exhaustive description of every believer before before they come to know Christ, before salvation. This is the context of salvation. This is where, Christ, where we are before Christ impacts us with the gospel. Just as Paul gave seven imperatives in verses 1 and 2 to the church, he gives seven descriptions of what the believers were like before they came to Christ. They were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing days in malice and envy, hated and hating. You might wonder, why does Paul do this? You might not find it difficult seeing yourself in this text, but at the same time, we might be wondering, why does Paul want to remind believers of their unconverted state? You might think it's, it's, it's inappropriate, it's distasteful, it's disturbing for redeemed people to think about their life before knowing Christ, to, to, to wallow in the past. Some of us are led to grief and sorrow upon considering our, our, our time before we knew the Lord. Some of us, this leads us to, to despair, Yet Paul encouraged Titus to remind the believers in Crete of these things. Well, why does he do so? I believe there are several reasons that are possible, but there are are two that are clear. First, as we will see, Paul wants the believers in Crete, he wants the believers in Crete and us to have a fuller grasp of God's salvation as a work of grace, a work that is completely unconditional. There is nothing within us that God sees that commends us for salvation. There is nothing within us that God sees that commends us for salvation. In God's economy, we bring nothing to the table but our own corruption. A right view of human depravity melts away any sense of self-sufficiency. Paul reminds them of their former state to remind them of God's amazing grace. You know, sometimes people that are, that are theologically minded and, and think about depravity or, or you know, people think we may have a low self-esteem. That, that's not quite it. We just have a high view of God. And we see ourselves in light of who God is. We, we remind ourselves of our former state to remind ourselves of God's amazing grace. So that's one reason. The second reason, which is even closer to our text, is Paul wants this description of our depravity before Christ to inform how we deal with other people. It's to inform our conduct. More specifically, Paul's emphasis is on how we should deal with unbelievers. 
And I believe that because notice the phrase at the beginning of verse 3. It says, for we ourselves were once. For we ourselves were once. Why should we show perfect courtesy to foolish people? For we ourselves were once foolish. Why should we show kindness to unrighteous people? Why should we show humble courtesy to those who go after the world and all its lust? Because we were unrighteous and we were worldly. Why should, we, why should we show kindness to those who hatefully reject Christ? Because we were hateful and malicious. Now, I think one of, one of the clearest commands in Scripture is that believers are to love not the world. Believers are to break from the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth where moth and rust can destroy. We're called to be heavenly minded. We're called to love not the world. However... Brothers and sisters, there is a biblical solidarity every Christian should feel for unbelievers. There is a deep empathy we should feel for every lost soul. There is a compassionate solidarity which is in every way appropriate. Every non-Christian is a reminder of who we of not who we were before we got smart and followed Jesus, but rather a reminder of exactly who I was before Jesus interceded on my behalf. That sinner was me. We should truly have a strong sense of this. And what I think is wonderful about this is, is this is actually different than, than uh, the love that God has for the world that we see in texts like John 3.16. God so loved the world, he has this unconditional love for the world and the badness, the bad world. Well, God's posture towards people is not conditioned by a former sinful state. Our posture towards all people is exactly that. It's deeply rooted in our own sinful experience and redemption from that experience. We've experienced the grace of God. According to Paul, this should dramatically affect how believers treat all people. It should dramatically affect how believers treat all people, believers and unbelievers alike. So church, I have two questions for us by way of application on this point. Do we show kindness to others? Do we show kindness, compassion, perfect courtesy towards others. Christian, how do you treat lost people in your life? How do you treat the lost people in your life? If you're somebody who, who works outside of the home, uh, if you left your workplace suddenly, would anybody notice or care? Would they? I'm not even asking if you share the gospel with, with lost people in your life, but are you warm? Are you, are you kind? Are, are, we, are we compassionate? Do we show courtesy to people? When, when we're pressured or pricked, do we bleed grace? How do we treat the lost people in our life? But also, how do we treat Christians in our life? How do we pe pe treat the brothers and sisters around us in the community of faith? Think of that one that offends you, that one that uh, you find annoying or you find obnoxious. Think of that brother or sister who doesn't apply the gospel as well as you think you do. You compare that believer to yourself? No, no, no. Paul teaches us that our conduct must be marked by gentleness and perfect courtesy. Do we show kindness to others? But I think what uh, uh, even appeals uh, to onion back a little bit more is, is why do we show kindness to others? Perhaps you hear this command, these commands in verses 1 and 2, and that's enough for you. Okay, I'll, I'll, from now on, I'm going to show courtesy <laughs> to other people, but most of us aren't like that. We need, we need a reason to. We need a motivation to. Many of us find it very difficult loving the unlovely. It's not easy. How do you share Christ with that person who's belligerent against the gospel? How do you show hospitality to that neighbor who never reciprocates your warmth? 
How do you show compassion and, and love and kindness to that mopey teenager who's so cold to your affection? How do you show kindness? Why should you show kindness? Brothers and sisters, we ought to show kindness because we were once completely depraved outside of Christ. I need to grasp that that sinner who I find so unpleasant is nowhere near as unpleasant as I was to the Lord before he saved me. Nowhere near. Like, I I have to believe that. I have to understand that apart from Christ, I am a wretch in the sight of a holy God. Christian, if you struggle showing kindness to people, you must remember that you've been saved by God's grace. And further, you must understand that any progress you have in the faith is by God's grace. We are merely instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And brothers and sisters, I believe this is, this is intensely, pra- how in- this shows how intensely practical our theology is. If we properly understand our sinful selves in relation to a holy God, we will understand that we are nothing, that apart from Christ, we are nothing but a foolish, hateful, hopeless people. This is the context of salvation. The context of salvation is the desperate state in which Christ meets us. It's where apart from Christ, we were foolish, hateful, and hopeless. It's the context of salvation. But secondly, let's consider the work of salvation. The work of salvation. Children, do you understand that apart from Jesus, we are all bad? We're bad people. Your parents, your pastor, myself. Apart from Jesus, we are, we are bad. And you know what bad people need? They need goodness. They need loving kindness. They need all the goodness that they can get. They need the goodness that comes from Jesus. Look at verse 4. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that word appeared, it comes from, from the Greek word from which we get our English word epiphany. Do you know what an epiphany is? Have you ever had an epiphany? Uh, the idea is that out of, out of haziness and, and confusion, there's just blazing revelation of clarity. You just a, a moment of revelation. And the idea in our text is that the inbreaking power of God has been made manifest and has pierced the profound darkness of our hearts. Think, think brightness, light, clarity, shining forth. And what is Paul describing? Sounds wonderful, but what, what, is, what exactly is he describing? Brothers and sisters, this is not exactly what happened when our Lord was born. This is what we celebrate every Christmas. This is this coming, the coming of Christ was an epiphany of glory. And as a church, we love celebrating this epiphany. We love celebrating the incarnation, that is, the divine becoming flesh, God becoming flesh, and like us. We sing special songs that commemorate this incarnation. We did it this morning. And in a couple days, many of us will exchange gifts, many of us will get together, many of us will feast, and that's all wonderful. And appropriate. Christmas is a beautiful thing. Let me encourage you, don't let all that obscure the fact that Christ's birth was an actual event. God became man, and he dwelt among us. People, human beings, they, they saw him, they touched him, they drank with him, they sang with him, they ate with him. Christ existed. He lived on this earth. And if you're here and you're, you're an unbeliever, you, you might be tempted to think that maybe Jesus is just the symbolic figure that we worship. I want you to know that that is not the case. He's a historical person. His birth was a historical event. We can have as much certainty that Christ was born and died as we can have of almost any other event. 
As much certainty as we can have that, that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon or that Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, we can know that Jesus Christ was born, lived, and died. And friend, you must come to grips with the reliable testimony about him. You must come to grips with what Jesus says about himself. He really was either insane or the Son of God. And you must come to grips with his purpose for coming into the world, and that's that people like you might believe in him and have eternal life. Christ wants us to understand the reality of our text, that he has appeared. And he has not only appeared in his incarnation, but the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared in every, to every believer in salvation. Not only has God's power shined forth in his incarnation and work on the cross, but appears with fresh clarity every time a sinner becomes a saint. You understand that? Every time a believer turns away from their sins and puts their faith in the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, that's an epiphany of glory that's shining forth on them. And Christ wants us to understand the reality of this text. The epiphany of the incarnation is the first fruit of God's dynamic work of salvation in each of our lives. Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Believers, he saved you. And, and we should ask, our text flows this way, but why does Christ save us? Why does God save us? Because of what does, Jesus sa- does God save us? Well, Paul makes clear first, it's not by works. And remember, in this epistle to Titus, Paul has given extensive instructions that Christians should perform good works. And how, and how Christians ought to live, how, they should, how should they should conduct themselves in an evil world. In other words, he has, made clear, he has made clear the necessity that Christians perform good works. And at this point, lest there be any confusion, Paul makes abundantly clear that Christians are not saved by works. Verse 5 says, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness. And what, what, I, what I think is wonderful is in the original language, the syntax is slightly different to even more emphatically negate the possibility that works justify us. It reads something like this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. You see that? Paul wants to make it explicitly clear that there's absolutely no role works play in justifying us, in justifying us before, before the Lord. Rather, it's because of God's mercy and grace. Paul wants it indelibly sealed in our minds that it is out of God's mercy and grace that we are saved. We sang, by grace alone we are saved. Our text tells us it's because of Christ's mercy. Verse 7 will tell us that we are justified by his grace. I remember when, when I was a child, uh, I was in a homeschool debate league. And homeschoolers, this is my Christmas present to you. Imagine me in an oversized suit and my father's ties discussing uh, NATO policy. Uh, that's how I spend my childhood. And uh, on this occasion, I was traveling to a debate tournament. I was riding with the Campbell family. And the Campbell family, uh, they remain one of the sweetest, warmest, kindest Christian families I've ever known. Particularly, Mrs. Campbell is one of the sweetest women I've ever encountered. She had the, the, the rare gift of being both a tender mother to her own children and to any other child that came through her path. On this occasion, I was riding with the Campbell family through Columbia, South Carolina, and we started driving through a poor part of town, and, and we noticed what, what appeared to be a homeless woman as we, as we passed by. And Meg Campbell, one of the Campbell's daughters, she, she muttered something unkind about this woman. 
She muttered something unkind about this, this homeless person. I don't remember what she said exactly, just that it was unkind. What I do remember was Mrs. Campbell's immediate reply to the back seat. She said, Meg, honey, were it not for the grace of God, you'd be exactly where that woman is. I don't remember Meg saying anything else on the ride. <laughs> In fact, I think we were, all, we were all quiet for several moments. And I learned two things that day. First, never say anything unkind around Mrs. Campbell. She will shoot you down. But secondly, much more importantly, every good thing inside and outside of myself comes from God. It's not by my own works, but by his own grace that I experience any goodness. This, brothers and sisters, in short, is the gospel. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to his cross we cling. Church, do you believe that? We don't bring anything to the table. God, it's out of his unconditional love and mercy and grace that he saves us. What are the instruments for this salvation? How are we saved? To be brief, it is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Our text says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Though the process of the new, through the process of the new birth, we are cleansed. We are purged from sins and renewed in the Holy Spirit. This is what has happened when God powerfully broke into our lives and saved us. We're washed in regeneration. We're renewed in the Holy Spirit. This is the work of salvation. We've considered the context of salvation and the work of salvation. Lastly, brethren, let's consider the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation. Our, our text offers uh, at least two purposes for this awesome work of salvation. And they're indicated by the word, so that. So when you see the phrase, so that, we know there's, there's a purpose coming for what, for what Paul has been explaining. Now, the first one I want us to look at is in verse 8. It says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul uses that phrase referring to, to a trustworthy saying or, or a trustworthy word. It's actually a phrase we see about five times in the pastoral epistles. And it's one of those phrases that, that when Paul says it, you, your ears should prick up. You should be listening to, to what, what Paul is about to, be, about to say or, or what he's referring back to. And I believe that the saying here that is, that is trustworthy, uh, it's my understanding that that saying is Paul's articulation of the gospel in the last few verses. It's these indicative statements about salvation. Remember, Paul is concerned to impress Titus the pastor with the burden to preach this message to his people to the end that the believers in Crete devote themselves to good works. The go this gospel material is to motivate the conduct of believers. This takes us back to the beginning of the text where we see plain instruction on just how to live. And if you read the rest of the epistle to Titus, it takes us back to, to the constant commands Paul gives to husbands, to wives, to young men, to old women, and, and slaves and masters. He's constantly giving practical instruction. And the idea is, uh, the idea is that because we do commands, the command to do springs from what Christ has done. We would talk about grace. The idea that clear from this text there's a command to do good works, but it's not a command that's justifying. It's a command that flows from what Christ has done. Does that make sense? We, we, we should be good because God's goodness has shined upon us. And I have to say, it's distressing to me how often believers and evangelicals recoil at the idea that we must be holy, that we must be good. 
You know, even, that, even the phrase self-righteousness, I hope yourself, you yourself are righteous. I hope you're a righteous person. The, the problem with self-righteousness is when you're using your righteousness to justify yourself. But you, should, you yourself should be as righteous as possible. You should perform good works. This is the purpose. This is why Christ has redeemed the church. He wants a church that's devoted to good works. He's called the church out of darkness to walk in light. The purpose of his salvation is that we be devoted to good works. The second purpose we see from our text is that we might become heirs of eternal life. Why has God saved us? It's that we might become heirs of eternal life. Another pur- this is other purpose of salvation we see in verse 7. It says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know what an heir is, what an heir does. The work of salvation has bought us the right to be heirs of eternal life. And when you think what it is to be an heir, this, that status is, is it, it's intrinsically forward-looking. It, it's looking to, to what God is going to provide to us. And I, I think one of, the, one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian, I wonder if you've ever thought about this, is that we wait. A distinguishing mark of a Christian is we wait for Christ coming again. God doesn't save us and we immediately receive our reward in heaven. That's not how it works. When God saves you, he calls you to eagerly wait the returning of his son and paradise with him. And we know that we've been promised a glorious inheritance in Christ. The joy we are to experience is unthinkably wonderful. But brothers and sisters, though our status is intrinsically forward-looking, this does not mean it only has future benefits. To be an heir has present benefits. Brothers and sisters, being an heir doesn't just affect you tomorrow. It affects you right now. It affects you today. It's an established fact that has profound consequences at this very moment. Your status as heir provides you with purpose. Think of the present freedom we experience in light of our inheritance. Think of the confidence and security we have because we know we're heirs in Christ. Think of the resolve with which we can face suffering in light of our inheritance. Uh, John, New- John Newton offers a, a, a very powerful illustration of this concept. He, he says, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering, that means crying, out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Do you understand the illustration? The fact is, this man is about to possess such a large estate that that should have affected how he viewed his present circumstances. And this is exactly our situation. Christian, do you sense how rudderless our lives would be if we were not heirs in Christ? If we were not the children of God? Think of the present blessings we experience as God's children, the fellowship we have together as saints, the joys of gathered worship, the tenderness of Christian fellowship, the illumination and comfort of God's spirit that, that tells us that we are his children. We have the sure hope of eternal life, and this changes everything. Brothers and sisters, we can apply this in so many areas of our lives. Let me suggest three to you. Consider your inheritance of eternal life next time you look at your finances. Consider your inheritance of eternal life, the fact that you are an heir, 
The next time you look at your finances, next time you look at, at your bank account, your wallet, your 401k, whether you're presently surprised or you're devastated, consider your inheritance. You're not going to bring a cent of your money past the grave. And it won't matter to you because Christ has a marvelous place prepared for you in heaven. Consider your inheritance of eternal life when you look at your finances. Secondly, consider your inheritance next time you are wronged or sinned against. Whether it's by a believer or an unbeliever, next time you are wronged or sinned against, consider your inheritance. How much evil can someone actually do to you? How much can someone actually grieve you? Any failure of another that causes us pain is just a light momentary affliction that, is no, that can't even be compared to the glory, the weight of glory we're going to receive in heaven. You just can't compare. God's word says that. Any suffering, any wrong somebody else causes us or somebody grieving us by their sin against us, what can it actually do to us? We have an inheritance of heaven. Consider this. Lastly, consider your inheritance next time you sin. Consider your inheritance next time you sin. I don't know if you're, you're like me in this way, but, but the longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm grieved by my sin. I sin again and again, and it's so easy to despair in the fight against remaining sin. But God's sure word promises us that there will come a day where we no longer sin and we will be like Christ fully. We will be like Christ. The Apostle John says in 1 John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, you understand that? When we, when we worship here, God's word tells us as we behold Christ, we're changed from one degree of glory to another. You want to be holy, you need to behold Christ. But God's word also says we behold him dimly. We don't see him quite as clearly as he is. But we're promised in God's word that we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're celebrating the wonderful appearance of our Savior in his incarnation. Each Sunday, we celebrate God's redemption in his, in his appearing in each of our lives. But there is coming another glorious appearing where we shall behold him face to face, and we shall be changed, and we will dwell with him forever, brothers and sisters. This is our inheritance. And perhaps you realize at this moment that you don't have the, this hope of eternal life but you want this hope you you want to be an heir you want this heavenly inheritance you want to go to heaven you want the blessings of salvation and you want christ you want him you don't want just the blessings you want christ himself friend all you need to do all you need to do is repent and trust in him Put your faith in, trust in what Christ has done on the cross in payment for sins. God's word says all who call on the name of the Lord, that's all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ offers himself to you now. He offers his, himself to you now. He will break into your life. He's ready to save you and he will save you like he has so many here today. Will you pray with me?
Father, we bless you for the wonderful work of salvation. God, we pray that you would impact us with the truths of your gospel. Lord, that we would understand that it's nothing in us that commends us for salvation. Lord, help us to appreciate that it is only by your grace that we are saved. Lord, we pray that this would cause us to do so many things. We pray that this would cause us to sing loudly in worship now. Lord, we pray this would cause us to love you more. We pray this would cause more glory to come to your name. But Father, we pray also that this would, Lord, inform our conduct in the world. Lord, may we be a people of good works. May we be a people like your son. And Lord, we pray that this message of salvation would break into lost souls today. Lord, with fresh clarity, Lord, may this be the day of salvation for many. Lord, we pray in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.